insubordination. And as I mentioned last week, this is an incredibly difficult passage of Scripture for a couple of reasons. One, the subject matter is incredibly difficult, and also because there's a lack of clarity on the specifics of the cultural situation that Paul was dealing with. There are some generalities that are known and can be applied, but the specifics is a little bit more difficult. But even beyond the complexity of what isn't clearly stated in Scripture, the subject matter is incredibly challenging. After all, we live in a world, we live in a culture where there is an increasing and intentional effort to strip away the distinctiveness that exists between men and women. In addition to that, there's a stripping away of the roles that have been assigned by God through His Word for the purpose of order in the world that He created, most specifically in the church and within the family unit. In fact, this deterioration of distinctiveness and roles can be seen very, very recently when a Supreme Court nominee was sitting before the Senate Judiciary Committee and was asked, what is a woman? And her answer was, I don't know. Well, you are a woman, aren't you? Well, I don't know. I've also seen in some other congressional hearings where an individual mentioned the capacity to bear children. What does that mean? Does that mean a woman? Well, no, because there are transgender men who have the capacity to bear children. So we have blurred the distinctions between men and women in such a way in our culture that it isn't inconceivable that that lack of distinction of role filters its way into the church. Because after all, what is out there in the world eventually creeps into the church. And if that were not so... I believe the Bible would be a little bit thinner and wouldn't be dealing with such obvious challenges that exist in the world around us today. Well, this passage that we're dealing with deals with the roles and what... deals with the roles between men and women, and it is just not a popular topic in the church. It's not a popular topic in the culture because we want to have kind of a unitarian existence where there is no difference or distinction, but that isn't what the Bible teaches us, and that is not the way God has created us as male and female. So anytime the Bible is going to challenge culture, it's going to be incredibly difficult. Why? Because you and I have grown up in a culture. This is what is normal to us. This is what is often acceptable to us and even appealing to us. And so anytime Scripture directly confronts culture, it is a battle. But we need to remember that God's Word is inspired by Him. It is inerrant, meaning it is without error, that it is eternal, which means it's never going to go away. And Scripture will always supersede culture, even if you and I don't like that or agree with it, it's still the truth. Paul concluded in our study of chapter 10 with this exhortation, and if you're in 1 Corinthians 11, I want you to look at verse 31. And your translation, I'm in the New American Standard, my version says, whether then you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This was a capstone to what Paul had taught about Christian liberty, as well as dealing with the issues of idolatry and immorality and divisions within the church. And this is also the foundation for the remaining sections in Corinthians, specifically how it addresses and deals with appropriate behavior within worship. 
So what we looked at last week, and number one in our outline, which is in your sermon guide, is Paul gives to them a very, a very brief word of praise, and it's a word that is not... It's a praise that's not continually offered through the book of Corinthians because there was so much improper behavior that Paul was correcting amongst them. But the tradition seemed to speak most specifically to communion, which we'll actually look at next week. And then in a few chapters down the way, this tradition of sharing the gospel message. Number two in our outline was this very clear principle of headship that was stated in verse three. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So the word head means the ruling part of the body, and in a literal sense, that's exactly what the function of the head is. It rules whatever our physical bodies do. Now, that does not mean that the head will not give in to cravings or desires that exist within the body, but ultimately the head is what makes the decision that I will or I won't. Paul gives three examples of how this is true in a metaphorical sense as he makes the application to roles and hierarchy within men and women, within husbands and wives, within the church. So the first metaphorical example is Christ is the head of every man. Now nobody would dispute that point, would we? Christ is the head of every man. It reflects his authority over man and man's subordinate role to him. And even non-Christians who don't recognize Christ as Lord and Savior, He is still Lord over them, although they don't willingly bend their hearts or their knees before Him and recognize that or agree with it. The second metaphorical example Paul gives is man is the head of a woman. So the role of authority and subordination is now applied to the relationship between men and women, and obviously this is in contrast to modern feminism and in our culture today. But I don't know if you would be surprised to learn this or not, but feminism is not something new that began in the 1960s or so. In America, feminism was a big part of the Roman culture, and the reason was very simple. In this day and age, women were little more than slaves. They had no rights. They were traded as property. They were considered to be a little bit above the animals, but not a lot. They were considered to be second-class citizens. And so there was an uprising amongst amongst women in this culture who did not want to be treated the way they were treated and who were attempting to throw off the traditional hierarchy that existed in their lives, which was not biblical, which was not desired by God, but it was their experience and their reality. So it was a contrast not only to our modern culture, but it was a contrast to the culture that Paul was addressing in his day. Now when Paul talks about man as the head of the woman, this role is further explained in verses 8 and 9, as we'll look at today in a reflection of the order of creation, which says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man, for indeed man was not not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And we'll look at that here in just a few moments. Now, what we need to remember as we look at roles between men and women, it's not a statement on personal worth or abilities or intellect or spirituality or any other qualitative form. It's very simply a distinctive role that God has decreed for men and women. 
And it's no statement on worth or value. As human beings and as Christians, women and men are equal at the foot of the cross. But God established this principle of male authority and female subordination for the purpose of order and complementation, as we'll look at again, not on the basis of any innate superiority of man. Now, as a man, I can tell you, I don't consider myself to be superior to a woman because of the role that God has given to me. In fact, many of us would look at some of the men that we know and think he doesn't deserve to have that position in a home. He should not have the position of authority over that family. But nonetheless, God has established that men have the role of leadership and women are to have a role of subordination. Even if the woman might be smarter, more capable, more spiritual, more determined, more committed, or any other thing that we would want to see exercised in the role of a man as authority within the home or within the church. The third metaphorical example that Paul gives is God is the head of Christ. In his incarnation, Jesus willingly subordinated himself to the Father as in the role of Savior and Redeemer, he lovingly subjected himself completely to his Father's will as an act of humble, humble obedience and fulfilling the divine purpose that God the Father had established for him. So these are the three examples that Paul uses to prove the principle that he is now communicating to the church of Corinth. And now we're going to read the entire passage again. And as we read through this, you're going to say, wow, this is pretty interesting, and, and it is. It's really difficult for a lot of different reasons. Let's read together beginning in verse 2 all the way through 16. Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head, for she is the one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God." Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. That's a lot of fun, isn't it? I would tell you that most pastors who would read and study through a book of the Bible before they decided to preach it would read this passage and some others in the book of Corinthians and say, you know, I don't think I want to do that. 
that just sounds really, really hard, and I know it's going to be really, really unpopular, and I'm just not sure I want to tackle that. Well, Scripture is Scripture, and it's there for a reason, and we would do well to do our best to understand exactly what it means and find ways to apply it to our lives. So as we continue in our outline, we get to the more difficult section here. It is more difficult because there isn't a great amount of clarity in exactly what cultural practice Paul is applying authority and subordination to. There's a general understanding, but there's even differences of opinion about what that general understanding might mean and how it applies directly to them. What is clear is that they're doing something in their worship service that is blurring the distinction between men and women and the roles that were given by God. Paul doesn't get into the particulars or with any detail. It's assumed that he knows very well what's going on and they know by what it is he's addressing with them, but there's just nothing in history that enables anyone to say this is precisely what Paul is addressing. They try to come to conclusions based upon everything that is written not only in 1 Corinthians but also in 2 Corinthians and then trying to piece things together from Paul's other writings and even from the book of Acts. And where that leads us is into an unclear application of the principle which is abundantly clear. Now, number three in our outline, as we continue to go through this, is shaming one's head. Paul talks about this in context, how a man's head would be shamed and how a woman's head would be shamed. And we're going to look at verses 4 and the beginning part of verse 5. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Now what isn't clear is if men were actually placing some kind of a head covering on their heads while they perform these roles, or if Paul is just using that as an example and, in, and as a contrast to what apparently was taking place with the women. So there are three main components to the section that we're going to look at in shaming one's head. So number one, the first component is head coverings. This literally means having down from head. That's what it would say in the Greek if you were to read this. Having down from the head. It is usually taken to refer to a veil. It is assumed that it might refer to a Jewish prayer shawl, but that was not really a part of Jewish practice until some 300 years later. It's also thought that this might refer to the hair that is coming down from the head, but there's a lot of debate about what this actually means. So in Paul's day, there were numerous symbols that were part of the culture that signified women's subordinate relationship to men, particularly of wives to husbands, and the usual symbol was a head covering within the Roman and within the Corinthian culture. So apparently, Paul is referring to some kind of veil or some kind of head covering that was used culturally to symbolize the subordinate role of men and women, specifically within the marriage relationship. Now, in many Near East countries today, a married woman would still wear a veil and it would signify many different things. One, that she would not expose herself to other men, that her beauty and her charms were reserved only for her husband, and she doesn't even want to care if other men notice her. 
So this is a part of the cultural practice within Near Eastern countries, even today. In fact, much of the Muslim countries today, women will still wear a head covering because this is an appropriate way to communicate my subordinate role to my husband and the fact that I don't want to expose myself to any other man except for him. We don't have any corollary analogy like that in our culture today. I don't know of anything that would signify a submissive role between men and women in our culture. I just don't know that it even exists. I might be wrong, but I don't know of anything. So similarly, in the culture of first century Corinth, wearing a head covering, most especially while ministering or worshiping, was a woman's way of stating her devotion and her submission to her husband and of demonstrating her commitment to God. This is what was implied within the culture of Corinth with a head covering that a woman would wear. The second component here is praying and prophesying. Now Paul is incredibly vague here. He will pick this up later in chapter 14, but prophesying and praying is relatively clear. Praying is speaking to God. Prophesying is speaking to people about God. One is horizontal, the other is vertical, and they are the two primary dimensions of a believer's ministry. So Paul isn't dealing with the praying and the prophesying, but he's using that as the example of the impropriety that is taking place within the worship of Corinth with women, most, most particularly, and not wearing a head covering. Now the third component in this is disgracing. What does it mean to be disgracing? Well, this is the shame that is brought to one's metaphorical head by specific Behavior. Think about it like this. Oftentimes, when our children do things that they should not do, things that they were taught not to do, things that were inconsistent with the way that they were raised, it would become a disgrace to the parents with whom it would reflect poorly upon because of the way that children were acting out. Since the parents are the metaphorical head of the child, their behavior reflects poorly on the parents. I can remember times when we would have conversations with the nursery workers or the children's workers in churches and they would recount some of the things that took place. We would shake our heads and go, that's not how they were raised, that's not how they were taught. And you wonder, what does that teacher think of us? When they've experienced my little renegade in their class doing all manner of things that I would never allow them to do in my home. Now, based upon the principle that Paul has established in verse 3, the metaphorical head for the man is Christ, and the metaphorical head for the woman is man. So the principle, so Paul's point in these verses is that whenever and wherever it is appropriate for men and women to pray or prophesy, they should do so with proper distinction between male and female. Now again, because we don't have any cultural parallels to that, it's hard to make It's hard to provide an example of how we go, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So based upon what comes next, it seems that Paul is probably addressing activities amongst the women who were attempting to move away from the distinctive roles that were theirs, and they were appearing to take on a more visible male appearance 
by not wearing the customary head covering. Now, we don't have a parallel to this in the church or even within the husband-wife relationship with something that symbolizes the roles of submission and authority. But think about it like this. If you encounter somebody in our culture today, and you encounter a man, and he has long hair, and he's wearing makeup, and he's got high heels, and his fingernails are painted, and they're long, you would go, huh, that doesn't look like a man. He is intentionally doing something to make himself look like a woman. And the reverse is true. When you see a woman who has her hair cut super short and is wearing men's style of clothing and men's boots, you go, huh, that doesn't look like a woman. That looks like a woman trying to appear like a man. And that's about the only parallel that we can come up with that indicates how they were intentionally trying to blur the distinction between men and women and in doing so degrade the distinctiveness of the roles that exist between men and women. So Paul makes the comparison here in the last part of verse 5. For she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. Now let me back up just for a second. If in fact, and I'll repeat this a little bit later, if in fact the head covering that is alluded to is not a veil and it is hair, then a man would be shamed by having his head covered by allowing his hair not to be long per se, but to be done in such a way to have a hairstyle or a hairdo that would make it look like he was trying to pull off the appearance of being a woman. That's how it would bring dishonor or disgrace to the man. But here, it is different. The one Excuse me, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. Now, do you know what that means? Do you know what that correlates to? We probably don't have any idea. I remember some years ago, a high-profile pop artist, Sinead O'Connor, shaved her head and the world was shocked. Why would she do such a thing? She was trying to throw off the traditional identification she had as a woman with her long hair. Britney Spears did the exact same thing. Shaved her head and the world was shocked. And that's what there apparently is an intentional an intentional desire to do is to lose the distinctive look of a woman by not wearing the head covering. So in Paul's day only a prostitute would have a shaved head. It was a sign of dishonor and of disgrace. If you walked around the city of Corinth as a woman with a shaved head, everybody knew exactly what you were. For women who were trying to throw off the yoke of tyranny as a woman in that culture, they might shave their heads as a way of demonstrating the injustice that they experienced, and they were trying to lose their distinctiveness as a distinctiveness as a woman and try to make a point. So this is kind of the analogy that Paul is bringing in here. If a woman is going to be within the worship service and not have her head covered, which was the cultural, symbolic, subordinate role of a woman to a man, then you might as well just shave your head like a prostitute would. 6a, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. Now, Paul is not saying that a woman who was refusing to wear her head covering was like a prostitute. That's not what he's saying at all. But what Paul is saying is that if a woman does not have her head covered, 
then she is a disgrace to her metaphorical head the same way a prostitute would be a disgrace to herself and those who knew what her shaved head signified. Now, long hair has long been considered a unique female female trait that gives a woman the special distinction of her femininity and her womanhood, and to cut it off would indicate a rejection of this role and a desire to appear less female and more male. Now, if you were doing that as a way of protesting the tyrannical culture that you live in, that's one thing. Within the context of the church and within the function and the roles within the church, to reject your female identity is to bring metaphorical disgrace to the head that God has established. This continues in verse 6, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off her head or shaved, then let her cover her head. So if you don't want to be a disgrace to your metaphorical head, like a woman who had her head shaved would, or a woman who cut off her hair in protest would, then just cover your head and go along with the cultural identification of the subordinate role that exists in the female-male relationship. Now, Paul goes on to defend this principle, and he does so by explaining the obligations of men and women. Now, three was challenging. Four is even more challenging, because this is going to ruffle feathers, and if we understand what Scripture means, then all it really does is reinforce the roles that God has established, and it does not communicate what we assume it communicates with superiority or um, a greater value within men. So, obligations of men and women. Verse 7, beginning in the first part of verse 7. For man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. So, the obligation for man is a role and a position of authority. Now, in Corinth, the head covering was a sign of subordination, and for this reason, a man should never have his head covered. Now, before we go too much further into this, let me say this. The obligation of the male position of authority that has been established by God is not a man's right to be abusive, to be power-hungry, to be manipulative, to be controlling, to be anything else. The man is simply to follow through on God's designed role for him, and he does so under the headship of Christ. Not under the headship of culture, not under the headship of identity or my own modeling or my own preferences, but under the modeling of Christ as my head. So let me ask you this question. How does Christ express or execute his head over the church. Does he do it with an iron fist? This is what you're going to do, and this is how it's going to be, and if you don't follow the line, then you're going to get what's coming to you. Is that the way Christ rules over his church? No, absolutely not. That's not the way a man is to exert authority within the role that God has established. So this position of authority is rooted in the principle of a man being the head of the woman. And here Paul indicates that man is the glory and the image of God. 
Now, all of mankind is created in the image of God. And what that means is this. We all have reason. We all have intellect. We all have will. And here Paul communicates a uniqueness in which man has been made in the glory of God. The section speaks of the creation order and the role that God gave to Adam. So in Genesis 2, after God had created all of the physical world around us, God created Adam from the dust of the ground, placed him in the Garden of Eden, and gave him the the responsibility to rule over the world that he had created. It is in this sense that man is the glory of God, created to rule over the world that God has made. So the glory of God is another way of expressing man's responsibility as being the authority within the male-female relationship, within the church, and within the husband-wife relationship. So the role of male-female was strengthened after the fall. So if you remember, God created Adam from the dust of the earth, and after Adam had the privilege of naming all of the animals, Adam recognized he did not have a helper suitable for him, and so God put Adam into a deep sleep, took a portion, or took his rib, and from that fashioned a woman, and after the fall, the, the, the role relationship between men and women was actually strengthened. So in Genesis three sixteen and 17, after the fall, God to the woman said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth your children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That is an indication your desire will be for your husband, that women are going to resist the man's role of authority over them, that they are going to try to throw that off, they're going to try to become their own boss and do their own thing, and do what they want to do and not be subordinate to anyone, let alone this man that I am now married to. Verse 17 continues, Then he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, by the way, Adam was the one held responsible for Eve's sin because he was the authoritative figure. God says, you shall, not, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So the man is to represent God in authority and rulership. And that is what Paul means by being the glory of God. After the fall, man's rule was strengthened. Consequently, he is not to wear any symbol within any culture that would give the appearance that he is taking a role of subordination to his wife or to women in general. Now this continues in the second part of verse 7. But the woman is the glory of man. So women as the glory of man is a similar way of saying what Paul has just said about how, how um, man is the glory of God. Women, excuse me, woman was made to manifest man's authority and will as man was made to manifest God's authority and will. Now, there's a couple of distinctions here that we would do well to note. The first one is this. Men in the role of authority are not omniscient. Man in the role of authority is not perfect. Man in the role of authority will often have incorrect ideas, incorrect attitudes, incorrect desires. And so this does not communicate that the woman does not have a voice 
It simply communicates that woman was made to manifest man's authority and will in the same way that man was made to manifest God's authority and will. So the woman rules, let me say that again, the woman rules with the delegated authority of man and carries out man's will just as man is God's delegated authority who rules in his place or carried out carries out His will. So I would be the first to tell you, and I believe that many other men would shake their heads in agreement, we tend to make better decisions when we involve our spouses in the process instead of just saying, well, this is what I'm going to do, and I don't care what you think about that, and if you don't like it, you just got to love it because after all, God has made me the man. You know, that's not the way it works. That's not at all what it means when Man is the glory of God. Man is the glory of God in executing His authority and His will as best as we can determine that. And the woman is to delegate the authority of man and His will. So again, this is not a statement of value or ability or anything else. It is simply a statement of roles. As far as saving and sanctifying grace is concerned, a woman comes as deeply into communion with God as a man, and in many cases even more so, because God has created women with a more innate spiritual desire. So, woman was made equally in the image of God, and that image is equally equally restored through faith in Jesus Christ. She will be as much like Jesus as any man when we see our Lord and Savior face to face. Again, not a statement on value or ability or spirituality or anything else. It's simply a way of solidifying the roles that God has established that men and women are obligated to fulfill so that we will execute in a way that it brings glory to God and you would execute so that you would bring about glory in your relationship with your husband. So Paul goes on to explain these obligations, again, based upon the creation order. Verse 8, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. So again, Adam was created first, and was given dominion over the earth before the woman was created. And when she was created, she was created from Adam's rib. She was given the name woman because she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew, that's what the word woman means. It is taken out of man. So the obligation of women is subordination. So if you look at this, men, the obligation is authority because man is the glory and image of God. Women, the glory of man, and their obligation is subordination. Verse 9, for indeed, man was not created for the women's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So she's not intellectually, morally, or spiritually, or functionally inferior to man. She is unique from him, and her role is to come under the leadership protection and care of man and be a helper to him. And what does that say? It says we need a helper, right? We don't know it all. We don't have it all in place. We don't have all the answers. We need a helper. Women, that means that you are a helpmate. You're not a dictator. You're not a ruler. You're not a one that plays the 
the power card in one way or another to get what you want. Just as a man doesn't rule with tyranny, a woman doesn't subordinate herself with manipulation to get something in an impure way. So, she's not intellectually, morally, spiritually, or functionally inferior to man. She is unique from him. Her role is to come under the leadership and protection and care of man, as we read in Galatians 2.20. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And this was Adam's epiphany as he has seen all of these miraculous creatures come before him. Adam looks and goes, huh, I don't have anything like that. And God, in His infinite wisdom, creates what Adam needs in the form of a woman who is to be his helpmate and help him execute his role and function before the Father. Paul Pete repeats what he's already said here in verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So Paul makes a reference to the necessity of this cultural symbol of subordination And he makes the connection here because of the angels. So what Paul is doing here is he's speaking of the subordinate role that angels have to God. And that word symbol of authority in the Greek is a single word which means rightful power or authority. So the covered head was the woman's authority to prophesy or to pray since it demonstrated her submissiveness and her acceptance of her role as given to her by God. So to throw off that symbol of subordination is to reject the roles established by God and it creates an improper expression of worship. Now Paul communicates this with a reference to angels and we understand that angels are God's messengers. They wield incredible power and they serve in protection to in, in their service to God. But angels are God's messengers and submissive service to God and in this sense women are to imitate the angels. So in the same way that these powerful, incredible angels are in service to God and are submissive to Him, women are also to be submissive as the angels are. The way they do that is to reflect the proper sign of subordination within the Corinthian culture with a covered head. Now, number five in our outline, we have the principle of interdependence. Now this is an incredibly important section. If we were not to have these next few verses, it would lead us to a a probable conclusion that we are to rule tyrannically over women, that they don't have any rights or any value of any kind. But this section provides a balance and a harmonization to what Paul has said Paul wants to protect women from the potential abuse of power. Now, thinking back to what was the common experience of a woman in this day and age, no rights, no true freedom, no ability to kind of pursue their passion or their dreams, the gospel comes along and creates an incredible sense of value and dignity within the, li- within the lives of women that had not existed before. For, for example, Paul is the one who says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church 
Never has anything like that ever been expressed within this culture. It was unique to Christianity and it reflects the value and the dignity that exists within women in general and within the marital relationship and within the execution of the authority and the subordinate role between men and women. So man's authority over woman is a delegated authority and a derived authority given by God to be used for His purposes and in His way. So man as a fellow creature has no innate superiority to woman and has no right to use his authority tyrannically or selfishly. Male chauvinism is no more biblical than feminism. Both are perversions of God's plan. Let me say that again. Chauvinism is no more biblical than feminism. Both are perversions of God's plan. When biblical authority and biblical submission work the way God desires, it is a wonderful, harmonious, enriching experience. When the authority is abusive or the subordination is challenged, it creates conflict and friction. And what we tend to say is there's a problem with the plan. There's not a problem with me. There's certainly not a problem with the culture. So we need to change the plan. Well, when we do that, then we open up the door for all kinds of greater problems. So we see here in the principle of interdependence, and there's two there, and you only need to see the first one here, is equal value. Verse 11, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Again, this demonstrates a principle of equal access to God and equal salvation from God. Men and women are complementary in every way, but particularly in the Lord's work to do the function together as a divinely ordained team. Now, I'll tell you this. When I was a new Christian... And I didn't really know a lot about the Bible. And at the point that I was saved, I, I, re- I only knew that I really wanted to be married and have kids and I wanted to have a family. And God allowed me to understand very, very quickly that I had no business being in a relationship. I had no idea what I was doing, who I was, what Christianity was about, what God wanted for me. And as God began to fill in the pieces, I knew very, very quickly that if I did not marry a woman who wanted to share the responsibility and the call to ministry, my marriage would be doomed. It would be doomed. And my wife, Marcy, has been a constant and a faithful companion to one who's been called into ministry. And I could never do what I do apart from that support and of that combination, and she compliments me in so many different ways, and she's come alongside the ministries that I've been in and made them better in every place we've been, and I think I've said this in almost every place I've ever interviewed, well, you will like me, but you will love Marcy. Everybody loves Marcy. Not everybody will like me, and that's still true today, but it's really rare to find somebody who does not love my wife because she's such a loving person. Now, I'm probably biased in that. But the reality is, she is a perfect complement to ministry because she shares in that call and she has the same heart and she understands God's plan as it relates to our roles and our functions. Doesn't mean that it's easy, but she understands it. So, from the earliest history of God's people, women have had a vital role in His work 
and in ministry to Him. Jesus was served and followed by a number of women who were vitally important to His ministry. They were there everywhere He went. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was unleashed, and the 120 gathered in the upper room and prayed and waited, as Jesus had instructed them, there were a number of women who were part of that miraculous experience. In Romans 16, Paul addresses eight women in particular who were vitally important in his ministry. So in many times and in many places, faith women have kept the church alive with little or no support from men. And that is a shame to men. It is like having your head covered. And it is not God's plan. Men are the ones who should be championing the cause of the church and busting down the doors of the world and women coming behind to faithfully serve and support and help in every possible way that they can. A church without godly women cannot be a strong and an effective church. If you go back and look through the missions that have existed within our world historically, many of them would not have existed apart from women who were called and who faithfully followed and went and served and did what called them to do. So the man's proper authority does not make him independent of woman, nor does her proper subordination make her alone dependent upon man. Neither is independent of the other. They are mutually dependent and fulfilling God's specific purposes. So even though the creation order communicates a distinction in roles, it does not communicate independence from one another. There's equal value and there's also equal need. Verse 12, for as a woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman and all things originate from God. So apart from this miraculous creation of the first woman, Eve, who was fashioned from the from the rib of Adam, all other men have come from women. There is no other way. There is no other dirt creatures being made that are populating our earth today. All humanity comes from women, not because they have the capacity to be pregnant, but because that is God's specific role for them, is to be the ones who give birth and life to all of humankind, apart from that first exception. So men and women have different roles, but not different importance. Women are equal to men in the world, in the church, and before God. That is God's wise and gracious harmony and balance. Difference in roles, but equality in nature, personhood, work, and spirit. He created both for His glorious purposes. We'll go on to talk more about roles as we get into chapter 14. Number six, Paul makes his final appeal to custom in the section we're going to look at. Next week we're going to look at Paul's continuing dealing with their uh, practices as it relates to communion. So after presenting his argument for following God's design and roles, he asks two rhetorical questions. He says, first of all, you decide. You decide for yourselves. Verse, verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? The expected answer is no. Paul never asks a rhetorical question that that he does not have an answer for in advance. So the cultural norm is for women to have their heads covered because it is a sign of subordination. To throw off this sign is to challenge what is perceived as culturally 
acceptable. Now, the cultural practice is not divine. The cultural practice is not to be applied to every culture. This is not saying that women today need to have their heads covered with a veil as a sign of subordination because that doesn't exist in our culture. In this culture, it did. And so for this reason, Paul says... You judge for yourselves as a proper for woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. So since this is a cultural sign, it happens to reflect the divine principle, and to throw it off is to, de- is to deny the respective roles given by God. But in case they decide they can choose to disagree, and they can throw away these roles that God has established through what Paul has taught them, Paul asks another rhetorical question, and to this question he expects the answer of yes. In asking this question, Paul is forcing their choice in being objective rather than being subjective to their preference or to the cultural norm that is, that is growing up in front of them. And that is that this is this nature confirms... Verses 14 and 15a, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. So as I referenced earlier, the long hair being a dishonor to a man is not necessarily because of the length of the hair, but because in this culture, in this day and age, men who had long hair wore their long hair in a feminine hairstyle, taking on effeminate traits, and they were often homosexual, and they were throwing off their distinctiveness as a created male. So that is what it means that a man who has long hair is a dishonor to him. So, But if a woman has long hair, is it a glory to her? So long hair was considered, excuse me, long hair has long been considered a part of a woman's femininity and her womanhood and her beautification. And so what is very peculiar, and I didn't know this before, is that men and women have very distinctive physiologies as it relates to hair. Now, there's many, many specific physiologies between men and women that are remarkably different. There's things with the length of certain fingers and the length of certain toes and the fact that there is an absence of ribs and there's many, many other distinctions. But one of the peculiar ones that I've not heard before is the distinctive physiology between hair growth. So, hair develops in three stages. Formation and growth, resting, and fallout. So the male hormone testosterone speeds up the cycle so that men reach the third stage, fallout, faster and earlier than women do. The female hormone estrogen causes the cycle to remain in stage one, which is formation and growth, much longer, causing women's hair to grow longer than men's. And that is why today women are rarely bald because they've not yet reached that third stage. So if you wondered why men typically bald much earlier and much more frequently than women, it's a part of the distinctive physiology. Now there can be extraneous factors that relate to that. But we won't go there. But there is a distinctive physiology in hair growth. So the physiology is reflected in most cultures, even today, that women tend to have longer hair as a sign of their femininity and as a way for them to adorn themselves. Perhaps this is what Paul means with the term nature, that this is an innate sense of what is normal and what is right and what is expressed here in the latter part of verse 15, for her hair is given to her for 
a covering. Now, if we go back to the very, very beginning, and if the head covering did relate to hair, and if a man's covered head was a sign of dishonor to him, then every male would be required to shave his head. Well, I'm not ready to get there yet. I might get there beyond my own preferences and and desires, but that's not my choice right now. And in the same way, because we don't have a cultural norm that dictates women show their uh, subordinate role through the head coverings, this has all been set aside. So Paul is making an analogy because of the cultural practices within Corinth where veils and head coverings are not a part of of a culture, then this analogy would not apply. So Paul concludes this section here in verse 16. If one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Here's what Paul is saying. I have said all I can say about the subject and the distinctive roles between men and women as God has established. There isn't anything more I can say that's going to change your mind. And for those of you that are inclined to disagree with this or to set this aside... I really can't say anything more about it. I don't have a sympathetic ear for you. This is not the common practice among the churches today. We have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So the apostles and the other churches were firmly committed to the practice that women should wear longer hair than men and should have distinctively female hairdos and should have their heads covered as a sign of their subordinate role. So where custom dictated it, they should wear proper head coverings to distinguish themselves as submissive. They should not try to blend the distinctiveness that exists between male and female because that is God. That is how God has made us. And so here we come to the end of a very long and a very difficult and a very <laughs> undesirable aspect of what needs to be taught within God's Word to God's church today. You know, as we look around at our world today, most, most specifically in America... If you come out and say, well, you know, I think there is, a, there is a distinction between men and women, already you're going against the cultural norm. If you go so far as to say that there are distinctive roles that relate to submission and authority, then you are a Neanderthal. And you don't even deserve to breathe the same air as those in the culture who would disagree with your sentiment. But you know what our culture believes, what our culture practices is not the standard. It's not what I think, it's not what I want, it's not what makes life easy, it's what God says. And I'll tell you that having the role of authority is no more enjoyable than a woman who has the role of being subordinate. Why? Because the man is held responsible. That's not how I taught, that's not how I modeled, that's not what I desired doesn't matter. That's the reality. As I mentioned earlier, Adam was held responsible for Eve's sin. He was the one that passed on the command to her. And when she was in the garden and Satan came in and said, Did God really say, God's not going to do that. He's just trying to hold you back. It made the execution of male-female roles exponentially harder. And that's the reality of the world that we live in today. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are